here or in my mind through live streaming and the power of the internet as we're about oh, almost midway through Advent now. Today we got a very interesting epistle and gospel reading. Um, can't help but feel a little weighed down thinking last time I got a gospel reading about wealth and poverty and giving to the poor and I got it again, but I think this time I'm going to talk about the epistle more. I'm going to talk about what Paul tells us in that wonderful passage from his letter to the Ephesians. Um, but I'm going to come back to the gospel a little later as an illustration of what Paul's really on about. And I want to dwell today especially on faith, on what it means to be saved by grace through faith, and this not our own doing, it is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. What that might mean in an orthodox context. Because see, I came to those verses very young and very often. I was in this, um, my parents had me in this thing uh, that we had in the States. I, maybe they have it here, I, I don't know. It's called Awana, and it stands for Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed. It's from First uh, Timothy. And it's, um, if you took the, the Boy Scouts, I don't know if that's a thing here either, actually. Well, Scouts, right, and it's all about, you know, doing good deeds and, and helping people across the street and going camping and things. If you took that and you made it more about memorizing Bible verses, but you kept the kind of weird quasi-military aspect, but made it about memorizing Bible verses, that was Awana. I did that for like 12 years and memorized a lot of Bible verses. But one that we got every year, well, we got John 3.16, naturally. You got to have for when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You got to have that. And then the other one we had, because this was a very kind of evangelical Protestant organization, was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. I had that drilled into my head because it was a reminder that it was all about grace and faith, and it was not about works, because works were what those other people believed in. And by other people, I think they probably meant Roman Catholics, but we had grace and faith. And that always made sense. It's like, yeah, no, it's, it's clear as day. Paul says it. It's grace. It's faith. It's not works. End of story. But then I get a little older, and, and I'm no longer in Awana. I'm doing other things, and eventually come to the Orthodox Church, and I start being reminded of other verses, uh, other things Paul says, like, do you not know that we are fellow workers with Christ, co-operators? Oh, hmm, that's a bit different. Or uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds a bit like stuff that I do. Hmm. And began to realize, and, and, and Tatiana put this to me well yesterday, I think, it's a false dichotomy. Saying that it's either faith or works isn't Paul's point, and it's not what we're about. It's not what the gospel really is. Because both of those, either one way or the other, you're kind of imagining life as an as a, as a accounting ledger sheet, right? You got your credits and your debits, and you got to be in the black. And the problem is most of us, we're, we're in the red. And so God's got to look the other way and kind of push us over into the black. So now we're, we're A-OK -okay in the ledger sheet. Or it's a, a, a checklist, got to tick all the boxes, do all the things, and oh, we're really bad at doing the things, so God's got to kind of do them for us. And you realize that's not what it's about. That what's happening in this passage is so much richer and scarier and more exciting and more wonderful than any of that could encompass. And I want to think about what it means to have grace and faith together, to have God 
operating on us in ways we could never do for ourselves, and yet to have demanded of us our total attention and response. And so I want to think first about uh, three key terms in the epistle today, salvation, grace, and faith, and then I want to illustrate them through the story of the rich young ruler uh, meeting Jesus. And then at the end, I'm going to bring it back to Advent and Nativity, if that sounds good to everybody. I mean, I hope it does because I don't have another plan, so we're going to do that. So let's start with salvation. We're saved, Paul says. And when you think about being saved, it's an easy term to say, oh, it's salvation. You throw it out there, and, you, and it's like we've said something, but you got to ask what that means. Saved for what and saved from what? And Paul has a good sense of what we're saved for. He, he says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now this is a pretty exciting notion of what it means to be saved. This isn't just getting plucked out of a shipwreck. This is being set on high. This is being made like Christ. This is being made alive in the way that Christ is alive. To live the life of God. Now that's pretty exciting. To be seated in the heavenly places as rulers. Because what else does it mean to be seated in the heavenly places but to be rulers in heaven? To have an inheritance, as the Psalms put it, among the kings and the gods. Whew. Salvation is exciting. Salvation is huge. Salvation is infinitely beyond just being told, well, I guess you're good enough, or you're not going to be in trouble today, which is sometimes how it felt growing up, that this was about not getting in trouble for things I should get in trouble for. No, this is about deification, theosis, as we sometimes say. It's about being made like Christ. And so that's what salvation really entails, and that's a big deal. But the problem is that there's also the question of being saved from what? And here's where it gets trickier, because it wasn't going from being pretty good to being better. Paul says, when you were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. See, we we're not, we in many ways are not, in a position where we're capable of doing this for ourselves. It is as though we are dead. The thing about dead bodies, they don't do things. They're just dead. And Paul, in the, in the, in the verses previous to what we heard today, but that actually kind of set this section up, he, set, he fills out what that really means for us. What does it mean to be dead in our trespasses? He says, well, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is even now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also lived, following passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humankind. Woe. That's what it means to have been dead in our trespasses, to have followed a course of life defined by enslavement to our passions and desires, to follow what he calls the prince of the power of the air. I mean, let's be real, the devil. Following God? No, following the devil. Exactly the opposite of what we should be. And so utterly incapable of changing that position that we were dead. But not just dead, despicably dead. And this brings us to grace. Grace is God's response to us 
not only when we couldn't do it for ourselves, when we couldn't become like Christ, but when we were so utterly unworthy of it that any rational person would look over and be like, no, that's a lost cause. I don't want anything to do with that. We're talking children of wrath, people deserving of wrath. But God looks at the, those people and goes, yeah, those are the ones. I think I'd like to help them. In fact, I think I'd like to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I'm going to give them myself, Christ Jesus, to be born, to die, to rise again, to offer us a truly, properly human life. God looked at us, the slaves of the passions, the followers of the devil, and said, yeah, I think those are the folks I'd like to do that for. That's what grace really comes down to. An action on God's part, not only for those who can't act for themselves, but for those whom no one would ever do anything for. In Romans, Paul says, who's ever heard of someone dying for a righteous man? Maybe someone would die for a good man. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were exactly the kind of person no one would die for, that's exactly what God did. And that is the work of grace. Grace isn't a one-off action. It's a way of acting. It is the mode of operation that is proper to God because it is born of his love. And it's love that doesn't expect us in, to love in return. It doesn't expect us to even realize how much we are loved. God just loves us anyway. And that kind of endless self-giving for people that may never respond, we call grace. And it does things that we cannot do. It makes us alive when we're dead. It breaks the enslavement to the passions and desires and makes it possible to be saved, to now live that life where at the end of the passage, Paul says, we are all God's handiwork, created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As much as we walked previously in sin and selfishness, we are now to walk in what he calls good works, those works which supposedly weren't really part of us being saved, but in fact, they are a big part of it. They're our response to it. And that response begins in faith. Again, you know, when I was being brought up, it was in this kind of very evangelical Protestant kind of uh, context. And, and normally I don't do the whole, you know, Protestants say this, Orthodox say that, you know, you might be an Orthodox if kind of thing. But in this case, I think it's pretty helpful because I always had this picture in my mind that faith was about belief. Right? Faith means believing certain things. Like when we say the creed, we say, I believe in one God. I believe. I believe, right? And I figured that's kind of what faith amounted to. And that makes a certain amount of sense. There's a lot about that. But in fact, St. Paul has something much bigger in mind. Belief's a part of it. I mean, it's not like we don't believe. Oh my goodness, no. But belief is just the very beginning of what he has in mind by faith. See, faith is the response that we, are, we ought to have to God's grace, to that endless self-giving love, well, how should we respond? We respond by living into it. We respond by becoming like Christ, by accepting that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and now we persist in doing what we cannot do. We persist in becoming like Christ. And this faith has much more like faithfulness 
Belief becomes more about hope, about dwelling in the hope that makes it possible to live like Christ even when all our urges, all our instincts say, no, take care of yourself, protect yourself. We say, no, I'm going to try and live with the same self-giving love that God has given me. And so faith is that response. It's our faithfulness to God's grace. Now, these are all kind of big, wonderful terms, salvation, grace, faith. But what do they mean in practice, right? I mean, that's always the question, right? Well, okay, you know, we're supposed to be faithful. This is our response to, what does that really mean? Well, I like the story of the rich young ruler, not just because it, it, it hammers home the point uh, of, of, of the dangers of um, acquisition, uh, which I talked about like a month ago, I guess, but because it actually really lays out grace and faith, and I think gets at what Paul was talking about. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and it says he's going to test him, right? Which is always a great, great move. Like, let's go test Jesus. Like, couldn't we learn from him or maybe just ask some advice? No, no, I've got, I've got to see if this guy really knows what's up, right? So he goes, and he says, what does he say? Good teacher, tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. And there are basically three things wrong with this question. First, he starts off by saying, good teacher. Jesus calls him on that real quick. You call me good? No, no, only God is good, my friend. You saying I'm God? You're not wrong, but I don't think you realize what you're up against. I don't think you realize, like, the level that you're, you're talking about. You want to talk about goodness, not just, not just getting a bit of knowledge right. You want to talk about what is good. That's a bigger deal. The second thing is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The third problem is inheritance, and I might leave that aside, but doing things to get eternal life. Bad news, there's literally nothing, nothing we can do to make our lives eternal. We are all going to die, right? There is nothing a mortal creature can do to become immortal. So it's kind of a foolish question in that regard. What can I do? Well, nothing, friend, but that may not be the biggest problem. In fact, there may be a good answer to that. But Jesus says, okay, all right, yeah, you want to know what you should do. Well, what are the commandments? And he rattles off about half of the Ten Commandments. He's like, you do those things? How's your, uh, how's your, how's your ledger? How's your tally sheet? You, you've been doing all the good deeds? You're in the black there, buddy? And the rich young ruler says, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty well in the black. I've, I've been doing it all right. I've been keeping the law, doing everything I'm supposed to do. Jesus is like, great, great. Guess what? None of that is going to give you eternal life because eternal life is about immortality, yes, but it's also about living the life that God lives. It be, means, subtly, but it means, I want to live as God does. I want to be like God. You know, if I come to a teacher and I say, good teacher, I want to be like you. Jesus is like, well, only God is good, so you want to be like God? You want to be eternal? You want to be good? Great. Getting your tally sheet isn't going to be good enough. It's got to be more. It's got to be deeper. And so Jesus says, all right, do one thing for me. Just, just, just one last little thing. I want you to, you know, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the rich young ruler, of course, goes, no, I'd rather not do that. And, well, it says he goes away sad, right? And Jesus reminds us, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle back to the liquid camels. No good. But 
what Jesus has asked of him is actually three things that come back, I think, to what Paul has in mind by faith. Jesus says, first, I want you to sell all you have. And in the rich young ruler's case, this, this really is about just getting rid of all his wealth. But it may mean other things. It may mean letting go of the things that we do to try and protect ourselves. Uh, maybe letting go of some of the anxieties and worries that are kind of constantly swirling around. And we're thinking like, okay, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to make sure I, I, you know, I do this for work and oh, if I got enough time this week and all those little things that add up to a way of life marked by anxiety over this life. You know, a radical rejection of that is very, very difficult. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, well, don't worry about what you'll eat or how you'll be clothed. God will take care of you. I mean, most of us are like, that sounds great, but I mean, seriously, I need to work to eat and I need to buy clothes. You know, I got to pay rent. You know, fair enough. Saying, go sell all you have, stop trusting in those things, is an impossible challenge. It's just not something that we can do. Our lives are marked out by having to take care of ourselves. That's, we, we have to. So how do you do this? Well, this is where grace and faith come back. This is where we say, all right, I'm going to get up. I am going to let go of those things. And then when we fail to let go of them, when we go back to our worries and our anxieties, we say, God, forgive me. I'm going to try it again. And we keep at it. And for me, this is about a 10-minute cycle. It takes about 10 minutes for all the anxieties and worries to creep right back in and for me not to let go, not to sell all I have, to bring it right back. But faith is about persistence, right? It's about staying in this space. And so even as we fail to do what Jesus says, we keep trying again. And so our faithfulness is marked by constant failures to let go. But then the next step, Jesus says, give to the poor. Now, in this passage, he means exactly that. I want you to sell your stuff, and I want you to give it to the poor. But if we take that a bit more broadly as well, let's think about it as let's do things for people who may not pay us back or who may not even appreciate what we do. And let's do it in such a way that we get no glory. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep it secret. Don't go pray in public. Pray in your private room. We don't do things for glory. Well, if not for glory, then for what? The answer? Nothing. We're not getting anything back. He says, you've heard it say, said, uh, don't lend at interest. Yeah, that's great. You know, I'm going to tell you this. Lend and fully expect you're not going to get paid back, period. So by lend, I mean give. You've heard it said, love your friends. Oh, well, yeah, easy done. Love your enemies. Love people who won't love you, who hate you. Right? This is what it means to now to give to the poor, to not only let go of the things that protect ourselves, but to act graciously like God did with us. If God looked at us when we were dead in trespasses and sins and said, yeah, I want to help those people, knowing full well that many of us would never respond, never even notice, and just persist in that form of life, well now, Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, I'm going to ask you to do the same. You want eternal life? You want to be good? You're going to have to act like God does, graciously. And acting graciously is extremely demanding. And here again, it may not be giving to the poor. It may be. And in some ways, it should be. But it may also be 
Oh, for me, it's always about like those little petty rivalries and jealousies at work with coworkers. I, that, that is, ugh, drives me up the wall. And that's where I've got to be acting. For me, that's where I've got to let go and where I've got to act graciously. Okay. And then the third thing. Follow me. It sounds easy, except of course it's not, because what does following Christ mean? It means following him to the cross. It means following him to death, if not literal death, like we heard of St. Stephen the New, but certainly the death of all that we would have held dear otherwise, the comfortable life. And this comes back also to Paul. Paul said, right, you followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. That's who you were following. Christ says, well, stop following that. Follow me. And it's a very different demand. And again, I feel like for me, and I think for many of us, this is going to be marked by a series of failures, by a kind of constant sense that we're not there yet, that we're not really up to it, that it is, in some sense, beyond our strength. It is impossible. But that's the demand. That's it. You thought you did everything by just perfectly obeying the law? No, no, no. I'm going to tell you the impossible task. The John Wick level impossible task, which is to sell all you have, to let go of everything that kept you safe, to give to the poor, to love those who don't love you, and to follow me, to renounce the old life and take up an entirely new one. And of course, in the story, the young ruler goes off, and the people around who thought, well, this guy's rich, he must be really good, they totally misunderstood the situation. They're like, whoa, if he can't do it, who can? And Jesus goes, you know, fair point. It is impossible with humans, but it is possible with God. In fact, all things are possible with God. Now, with that in mind, I want to think about nativity. I want to think about Advent. Because there's another time in Luke where we hear that things are impossible with humans, but these are possible with God. And that is in Luke 1, when the archangel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. And Mary goes, mm, no, I've had the birds and the bees chat. I don't think that's how it works. Can't do it. And Gabriel goes, well, these things are not possible with humans, but all things are possible with God. The point is that that rich young ruler's salvation, all of our salvation, is impossible. And it is precisely as impossible as the Incarnation. It is just as impossible as the virgin birth, as God becoming human. But good news, one of those things has happened. The incarnation, impossible though it was, happened, because with God there's no such thing as the impossible. And so now we're in the season of Advent, and we're looking forward to what has already happened but which we will be celebrating again as we do every year, the impossible incarnation, which has, in which God breaks into our world with his grace, with his acting on us when we cannot act for ourselves and when no one in their right minds would act for us. He breaks in, in Christ, and does. And that's what we're coming toward. And so right now we're in a season of waiting, of hope, of persisting in faith, which is more than belief. It's faithfulness. It's persisting through all our failures, knowing that 
Nativity is coming. And if nativity is coming, then we can be saved. And it's going to take letting go. And it's going to take learning to be gracious. And it's going to take following Christ. And it's going to take realizing that we will fail at that so many times every day that it will continue to seem impossible. And yet, knowing, knowing that with God, all things are possible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.